Um, on, the, on the wall of uh, the former church of one of my favorite pastors, the following message is written, and it's kind of this church's mission. And it says, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. I love that. That mission statement is the aim of that church and the mission of the pastor's life has unwaveringly been to lead people into finding their ultimate joy in God. Because it has been his deepest conviction that anything less than joy in God will lead to nothing more than a transient happiness in life, which is joy's cheap and unsustainable substitute. And I agree with that conviction wholeheartedly. Joy in the Lord is like a spring of water that runs through the life of a believer, that quenches our thirst, that sustains us and produces in us the strength and the perseverance to press on in this life. The joy that is available through faith in Jesus, it is powerful. And it is much more than just an emotion. If joy was just a feeling like happiness rather than a powerful weapon in the believer's life, then Jesus would not have been so concerned about it. But Jesus did concern himself much with our joy. In fact, Jesus' desire for his disciples was that we would be filled with joy. Not that we would just have a taste of it, but that our cups would be overflowing with it. And the, the joy he wants us to have is not a joy that is produced from within us but a joy that mimics his very own. Jesus is serious about our joy. So serious, in fact, that even on the night before he went to the cross, when he was facing his greatest hours of sorrow and his greatest hours of pain, the joy of his disciples was in the forefront of his mind. In John 15, as Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room on the evening before his crucifixion, he says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Then a little bit later in the evening, as he goes off to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Judas arrives to betray him, he says to the Father in prayer in John 17, 13, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants his disciples to be filled with joy. And the way that he speaks of this desire, he he wants us to be so filled with it that there's no room, no space in us for any more of it, that we would be lacking nothing. Both instances in John 15 and John 17, they use the same Greek word, pleiroo. And some English translations translate this Greek word as complete. Some translate it as overflowing. Some go as far as to just use those words together, complete and overflowing. All to communicate what the Greek means, which is to fill to capacity. So Jesus doesn't just want us to taste joy He wants his followers to be so filled with joy that there's no more room for it in us. 
I believe the kind of joy that Jesus desires us to have is available to anyone in Christ. Regardless of your personality, regardless of your disposition, regardless of your circumstance. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to look the same for every person. Because differing personalities and differing dispositions play a role in the outflow of what our joy looks like. For some of you in here, joy in the Lord is an extremely outward thing. It's, it's almost contagious, right? You're the type of person that you're always smiling. Many think, man, that, that person is just the happiest person I have ever seen. It, it, but it flows from this root of joy in the Lord. Well, there's others of us that are maybe a little bit more reserved because of our disposition. But in how we speak and how we act, you can tell that we are sustained by the same joy that's more demonstrative in other people. This joy is, is universally available if you are in Christ. And you know how I know that? Well, first, because... When Jesus was praying to his father in John 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying for all of his disciples. He says himself, those who are here and those who are far off, everyone to whom you will give me. He was praying for all of us, that we would have the fullness of his joy. Also, I know it's available for all of us because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in every believer. Remember Jesus said it was better for the sake of his disciples that he go, right? John 16, verse 7, he says to his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And one of the reasons why it is better that the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, came to us, is because he produces in us the joy that Jesus desires us to have. And we know this because joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so we need the Spirit dwelling within us in order to experience the joy that Jesus desires for us. A joy that is not of this world, but one that comes from him. For he said that you may have my joy. Not just a joy, my joy. Jesus wants us to have his very joy that dwell within him. So if you haven't figured it out already this morning, and we're talking about joy. So let's pray as we dig into this message together. Father, I pray that your truth would come through today. Father, that the reality that joy is available for all people in Christ would speak to the hearts of your people, Lord, that we would be the most joyful people that there are. Knowing what you have done for us, knowing what we have waiting for us in eternity, knowing that whatever storms come in our life, we have a firm foundation that we can stand upon. And so, Lord, as we talk about your joy today, may that joy be also ours, as you so desired it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in week three of our series, Who is this Savior, the heart and character of Jesus? And we're going to consider the fact that Jesus is joyful this morning. In fact, I would safely say that our Savior and King is the most joyful man who ever lived. I'm not sure how often 
we think about Jesus as joyful. But I want to consider it this morning. I want to consider this characteristic of him this morning for three reasons. First, I want us to consider it simply because our hearts need joy. As I said earlier, it is a powerful force for our lives. And there is so much in this fallen and this broken world that can and will steal happiness from us. And so we need to be rooted in something greater than that. We need to know lasting and sustaining joy is available for us in Jesus Christ so we can press on in the midst of trials, especially in those times when the winds and the waves just seem to come against us in life. We need to have that joy that sustains us through it. The second reason goes back to what I said in week one of this series, that Jesus came to earth to reveal the character of his father to humanity. Right? The Old Testament decrees no one can see the father and live. And so Jesus Christ came to show the father to us. And in John 14, 7 to 10, Jesus tells his disciples, if you know me, then you know my father. If you've seen me, you have seen my father. I am in him and he is in me. And my words that I say to you, I do not say them on my own, but by my father's authority. Meaning, what Jesus reveals about himself to be true through his actions and his words, he speaks directly from our heavenly father. And it comes from the heart of our father. And so the heart and the characteristics that we see in Jesus are found in our heavenly father as well, because they are one. And for some people, one of the hardest things for them to wrap their minds around is the idea that our father in heaven is joyful. But if Jesus is joyful, then our father in heaven is also joyful. Because Hebrews 1.3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And for some of you this morning, because of past experiences, maybe in church, because of negative experiences with your own earthly father whose character you have projected onto your heavenly father, or because of how our culture portrays the image of God, you have a false understanding of his character, and you just need to simply leave here this morning knowing your Father in heaven is filled with joy, that he's not angry at you, that he's not cynical towards you, that he's not got this disposition towards you of reluctantly accepting you with a scowl on his faith, but instead he is joyfully receiving you as his child. And last, some of you in here need to be freed from bondage. Some of you in here need to be freed from strongholds. You need to have your minds renewed so that you are released to pursue your ultimate joy. And when I say that, I mean two things. There's two sides to this coin. First, there are those of you in here who, because of your family of origin, maybe because of your faith background, especially if you grew up in a more legalistic atmosphere where duty is elevated over all else, you may believe pursuing your joy is a selfish act and shouldn't be a part of the Christian life. That this life is all about pleasing God and your joy doesn't matter. 
And so this morning, some of you just need to be given permission not to feel guilty, thinking it's wrong to pursue joy as a Christian. It's not. In fact, one of the greatest motivations of our faith is the pursuit of our ultimate joy. The other side of this coin is some of you are here and you are selfishly and to your own detriment pursuing what you believe will bring you joy. But you have actually fallen into the trap of our enemy and you are pursuing joy's cheap substitute, happiness. You are constantly trying to fill the void that joy should fill with temporal and fleeting and transient things. And all it's leading to is more depression and more discontentment and you are drowning. And I guarantee you, if that's you and you're here and you have a family, your family is drowning with you. And so some of you this morning need to be freed And repent of the false pursuit of happiness that you've been chasing in order that you can now pursue your ultimate joy. And so let's look at our scripture and get to work. Our main scripture this morning, it's a big one. It's one verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So from this verse, I want to state four conclusions that we are going to consider together. The first conclusion is this, that Jesus pursued and is motivated by joy. Therefore, so should we. Second, The joy Jesus pursued was a future promise of joy. Therefore, that's what we should pursue. Third, Jesus's joy is grounded in his obedience to his father. And so is ours. And fourth, Jesus's greatest joy came through his greatest sacrifice and service to his people. Therefore, the same principle is true for us. So we're going to consider those together. But before we do, I want to just give context to Hebrews chapter 12 too. And I hope that this context will be helpful for those four statements as we unpack them. I want to briefly look at the purpose and the, the overarching message of the letter of Hebrews. And the overarching message of the letter of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior That Jesus is greater than all things in every way. And the writer's purpose is to lead his readers to conclude that because Jesus is greater than all things, because he is superior over all things, that we should remain faithful to Jesus despite any persecution and any difficulty that we may face in this life. The writer of Hebrews argues this message by comparing Jesus throughout the letter to important people and events and systems throughout Jewish history. So while we don't know who the writer of the letter was, we can conclude because of the writer's careful references to Jewish history, he was writing to Jewish Christians who would understand the comparisons that he was making. That's the name of the letter, Hebrews. The letter begins with an initial elevation of Jesus that sets the stage for the rest of the writer's arguments. 
In the first three verses of the letter, he establishes that Jesus is superior to all ways that God has previously spoken and interacted with his people. And this is because Jesus is God's son and the exact imprint of his nature. And then throughout the following 10 chapters of Hebrews, the writer compares Jesus to specific people and events and things that happen in Jewish history to show his superiority over all of them. First, he compares him to angels and the Torah, exemplifying that the message of good news that Jesus brings surpasses the message that came from the angels in the Old Testament and the law which came through Moses. Then he compares Jesus to Moses directly and the promised land in order to signify that Jesus is the greater shepherd. He is the greater leader of his people. And the land that he leads his people into is not a temporary earthly home, but a superior and eternal dwelling place in heaven. And then the writer compares Jesus to the priests of the old covenant and Melchizedek to show that he is the great high priest who comes from the order of Melchizedek as prophesied in Psalm 110. And last, the writer compares Jesus to the sacrificial system and the old covenant to show that he is the ultimate sacrifice given once for all and that the new covenant established through his blood is superior to the old one. So after establishing these things, the writer goes on to exhort the Christians in the last (coughs) three chapters to press on because all of these things that are true about Jesus And that's what our writer's doing in Hebrews chapter 12, where our verse is found. He's exhorting his readers to press on because of Jesus' superiority. So having that background, let's now look at the four conclusions that I stated earlier. Conclusion number one, Jesus pursued and is motivated by joy. Therefore, we should be Also, some of you may not like that conclusion at first because you're uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus doing something for his own personal joy, right? Or us doing something for our joy. Like, are we not supposed to lay down our lives? Are we not supposed to take up our cross and follow him, right? To pursue joy seems selfish, But it's impossible to come to any other conclusion from Hebrews 12, 2. The verse says, Jesus endured the cross for. Some English translations say because of or in view of. The Greek word auntie, which is used three times in Hebrews, and in every instance in Hebrews, it means for the sake of or for the cause of. So Jesus endured the cross for something, for the sake of something, in view of something, because of something. And what was that something? Well, it says that it was joy. For the joy that was set before him. So Jesus was motivated and pursued joy. And if he was motivated by joy, then we as his followers can and should be motivated by the same thing. In fact, there are over 100 verses in God's word, and probably more, that's just for me doing a really quick survey, that speak about our joy as followers of Christ. Jesus wants us to be joyful, so we should pursue it. 
Again, as I mentioned, my, my favorite pastor earlier, if you haven't figured it out yet, is John, John Piper. And he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And doesn't that make sense? Right? To, be, to be satisfied is to be joyful. The two are interchangeable. And so Piper is saying, when we are joyful in God, when we are the most joyful in God, he is so much more glorified in us. Right? Than if we're just doing blind duty. And so we should pursue our joy. <coughs> Conclusion number two. The joy Jesus pursued was a future promise of joy. Therefore, the joy we pursue is the same. There is an unshakable joy that comes from being rooted in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And we add to that by holding fast to him in faith and the future promises of joy that are for those who are a part of God's kingdom. Some of you are stuck in a pattern of pursuing temporal joy, hoping it will satisfy you. But it's, it's like trying to cover a wound with a wet band-aid. It doesn't stick. It never stays. You need to lift up your eyes and, and stop being like that, that child that's playing in the mud when all he has to do is go across the street and Disney World's waiting for him. Stop trading the joy that you could have for transient things by pursuing lesser things and go after your ultimate joy. Hebrews 12.2 says, It was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross, meaning it was a joy that he had not obtained yet, but he was looking forward to. What was Jesus' future joy? Well, this is where we need to look back at our quick review of Hebrews. Jesus was motivated by both our and his joy. First, as the the greater once for all sacrifice, whose blood bought the new covenant, Jesus gets joy from his people benefiting from his work on the cross. Have you ever thought about that? It brings Jesus joy when you come to him and you put your faith in him and his work on the cross then covers you. That is an amazing thing for him, right? It's like a a doctor going to a patient. They want to help. It brings them joy when they can use their knowledge to help someone. It's the same with Jesus. He doesn't do it reluctantly. He's happy when we come to him. As the great high priest Jesus gets joy from interceding on behalf of his people to the Father. That's what it means by being at the right hand of God. As the greater Moses, Jesus gets joy from his people following him and finding their way home to the promised land. As the greater message, Jesus gets joy from broken sinners coming to him and finding life in this gospel. Some of you just need to know that this morning. Jesus gets joy from these things. When you take up what's offered to you. This may be a bad illustration. But as I reflected on the joy set before him, I kept, I kept thinking of that saying. I don't know if it's a saying or the idea of like dangling a carrot in front of someone. Everybody knows that kind of idea. And I hesitate to use the illustration because there's, 
there tends to be negative connotations around that idea, like the carrot gets pulled away or you can never quite reach the carrot. It's just being dangled in front of you constantly. But it's just what kept coming to my mind. It's this idea that there's a joy waiting for us. There's a joy in front of us. There's a future joy. Like what Jesus looked to when he was going through the cross. And God is enticing us toward the promise of a reward. When he gives promises, they are always true and they are always lasting. So for Jesus, the, the joy of the promise of what was to come was what helped him endure the cross. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 says. The joy of what was to come helped him endure the cross and it helped him despise the shame, as it says in verse 2, which means Jesus didn't ignore the shame of the cross. He felt the shame of the cross, but he held it to no consequence in view of the joy that was to come to him. Can you imagine if we lived that way? My old pastor used to ask the question, are you living with eternity stamped in your eyes? To remind us to to lift our eyes to the joy that was set before us. We have a, a promise of everlasting joy that is abundantly greater than any temporal pleasure here. So we should orient our lives around that and pursue that. So when I say some of you need to be freed up to pursue your ultimate joy, that's what I'm talking about. You need to stop pursuing the little things, the lesser things, and often the damaging things, and pursue the greater thing that the Lord has put before you, that promise of eternity. The joy we pursue is our eternal dwelling place in the presence of our Father. This this is what motivated Paul. Paul was incredibly motivated by what was to come. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul was incredibly motivated by the joy that was to come, that that weight of glory that was before him. This is what Jesus held out before his disciples as our motivation for when troubles come against us. Luke 6, verse 22 to 23. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and reviled you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying when troubles come, when people come against you, that is an opportunity for joy because that means that you have a place in heaven when they come against you for your faith and your beliefs and Jesus as king. That should make you incredibly joyful because of what's to come. Conclusion number three. Jesus' joy is grounded in his obedience to his Father. Therefore, so is ours. So we've concluded that, that Jesus pursued and is motivated by joy. And that he pursued future joy. And so should we. But, but how? 
And conclusion three is the answer to that. Jesus' joy is grounded in his obedience to his Father. Therefore, so is ours. Or maybe, to say it a different way, the path to our joy and the path to Jesus' joy is through obedience to our Father in heaven. The last part of Hebrews 12.2 gives the result of Jesus enduring the cross. And it says that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, to be seated at the right hand of a person of high rank means to have equal honor as that person. It is a recognition by that person as having equal dignity and authority and their deep trust. The reason why Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, at least in part, is because he has the Father's utmost trust due to his perfect obedience to the Father's will. An obedience we see most plainly explained by Paul in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And it was through his obedience, which meant going to the cross, that he obtained that joy. Yours and my and everyone's joy, the path to it runs through the path of obedience to our Heavenly Father. And conclusion number four, Jesus' greatest joy came through his greatest sacrifice, and his service to his people. Therefore, the same principle is true for us. For those who believe, joy and suffering are antithetical. It's not in the kingdom of God. For those who wonder, how can you possibly lay down your life, take up your cross, and yet pursue ultimate joy. Know that it's possible. In fact, for all of us in our culture, we need to renew our minds in order to understand this. The world's view of joy is that it will only come through living for yourself. How can you possibly have joy if you don't live for yourself and get the things that you want? How can you obtain joy if you don't chase after those things? Well, Jesus pursued joy through the loss of everything. Jesus pursued joy through sacrifice. He pursued joy through service. And that is where our greatest joy lies as well. 
When we stop living like the world. When we start thinking of others as greater than ourselves. When we start thinking of ourselves less. And we work to fill someone else's cup instead of our own. That is where you find joy in abundance. Because that is the way of God's kingdom. So long as you live the way of the world, you'll never obtain it. You live like Jesus, you lay down your life, you pick up your cross, and what does he say? Those who lay down their life will realize that they've found it. And in that is your greatest joy.